Hello again and welcome back to Voices from Heriot Country. I'm Helen Levy. And I'm Simon Collins. This time we're talking to wildlife artist Robert Fuller, whose paintings, mainly of creatures he sees around his rural Yorkshire home, sell across the UK and increasingly around the world. Let's begin with one of the few times that Robert's been frightened by another living thing. There was a lot of fuss I had the guide in front of me in a canoe and he had a rifle pointing uh, at the hippo but I was in the same line as the hippo and the, the hippo got so close to us and I was rowing as fast as I possibly could. This was in Zimbabwe, they can actually touch the bottom of the river there, it's wide and shallow. It got so close and uh, we were just coming back into camp, everyone was screaming. Hitting the paddles on the water, the people that had already got out of their canoes. And it, it stopped, and actually, the bow wave of the hippo landed us on shore. But it had stopped just, uh, I don't know, about seven or eight metres behind us. So you were just lucky, it chose yeah, to and stop. Yeah, and the bow wave bow waved us on to the, to the bank, and it was like, whoa, got to the bar and says, Can I have a drink, please? <laughs> As well as Africa, Robert Fuller has been to every other continent. In his early years, though, his travels were in his own backyard, a pretty glorious one. He was born in 1972, two years after the first James Herriot book appeared, the son of a beef farm manager who was also a wildlife enthusiast. Robert grew up on a farm 40 miles from where Herriot, the vet Alf White, worked. The youngster didn't enjoy school. He struggled with dyslexia. He did enjoy art, though, and was increasingly drawn to it. At home, Robert also enjoyed engaging with the natural world. I was always described as feral, so I would get back from school, I'd be out into the garden, I had like aviaries and coops, and uh, I kept obviously like chickens being on a farm, geese, uh, we had uh, all different types of pheasants, pigeons, uh, and then I got interested in birds of prey. Uh, I started off with kestrels, barn owls, buzzards. Uh, red tail hawk uh, and then moved on to a goshawk that I used to fly. So I used to spend all my time as well literally out in the fields, in the woods, in the streams. I was fishing, I was uh, taking ferrets out, catching rabbits. I probably would have been pretty self-sufficient at the age of uh, 15. You know, we'd go out and catch rabbits and uh, you know, we'd skin them, we could eat them for our tea. I used to shoot, I used to treat all of the things that we got with respect we actually ate them utilized everything that we got and then instead of using a, a gun i started using a camera and uh, shooting the wildlife that way what kind of switched in your brain what switched me one day was actually going to a tree and there was an old elm tree and there was a barn owl in there uh, in their barn owl nest and we were just knocking about this tree as kids and this beautiful barn owl flew out I went home and told my dad and he was just starting to get into photography in the 80s and uh, we just put up a hide so we stacked some bales on top of each other and made a rudimentary hide and me and my dad spent evening after evening sat in there watching these barn owls just holding a torch so we could focus his camera and uh, you know I got hooked then I was already watching the wildlife and interested in the wildlife but uh, moments like that and when I was really small I used to just lay on the grass and look into the garden pond and the things I saw in there was like something out of a sci-fi movie. You'd see the great diving beetles, 
uh, attacking the tadpoles and literally sucking everything out of them. Tiny little things like the water fleas, the hunting spiders that run across the uh, wolf spiders, I think they are, that run across the water. And occasionally I'd catch a fly and bob it on the surface of the water and see who would get it. I think my mum and dad thought there was something wrong with me, and maybe there is. <laughs> but I just had this zero, zero concentration when it came to any written work and reading. What was this? 15, 16 when I left school and I had a reading age of an eight-year-old. And in fact, my eight-year-old cousin could actually read a lot better than I could when I left school. Uh, so I- Times have changed. Robert's raw painting talent was honed by years of studying and practice and he's conquered his dyslexia, often writing for magazines and newspapers. His art gallery is in a converted dairy next door to the farmhouse he moved to 20 years ago, and he employs several staff. They sell all manner of animal-themed paintings, some for thousands of pounds. In Robert's studio, where he works alone, big windows overlook his three-acre garden full of busy birds. His walls are adorned with countless photographs and partly completed pictures of all kinds of animals and birds. He showed us an almost completed project which was inspired by some very special visitors. Putting this all together into this painting that's then taken me uh, months to actually paint, you know, 19 sparrows all individually painted, all those feathers, all the wings, all the beaks, all the eyes, and then all of the blossom and the backgrounds. That's a, a huge project. I just love the sparrows. When I arrived here, I had uh, two sparrows and they were just living up in the roof of the house and I started feeding them and by the end of uh, that year I had 16 sparrows and then I put more nest boxes and now I've got like hundreds of them. (laughs) Some of Robert's paintings are of creatures that would be totally out of place in Yorkshire. These works are often shipped abroad. Some, for cruise ship customers in Antarctica, travel several thousand miles, a journey the artist has made himself. I went there to see penguins. I just love them, the character, the sense of fun. They just, uh, they want to interact with you. And there's birds, that's quite rare. Uh, they actually come to you. We're looking at them, we're fascinated by them and they're actually fascinated by us. You know, you lay down on the ground to take some pictures and you feel a big peck on your boots, like peck, 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 like knocking on the door, and you turn around and there's a young penguin there and it, it, it's flapping its wings and going around in circles, calling at you. And it's, look, you know, look at me. <laughs> Talking of looking, millions of people watch Robert's popular live videos of Yorkshire wildlife, but only a small fraction of those viewers are in Britain. Most are in America, but there are more and more in Asia. China is one Asian country that's particularly high on Robert's hit list, and he admits it's not just about selling his paintings. You know, a lot of people are down on China, obviously at the moment with the virus, but obviously on their animal welfare, the wildlife, you know, the respect for the wildlife. We just want to make some inroads into China and see if we can actually make a little bit of a difference. Although he's more likely to shoot a photograph than a gun nowadays, Robert doesn't see killing the likes of pheasants and rabbits as an issue, no big surprise considering his upbringing. But it's true to say he's made a big difference to the lives of many animals and birds. He described a scene that could have come from the pages of a Harriet book involving Gizmo, an orphaned owl. It was a fabulous uh, little character who would land on my shoulder and start pulling at my ears. And he had a sense of humour because you would then try and get him off your shoulder and he would run down to the middle of your back 
and hook his beak onto your jumper so you couldn't get to him. So just to the point where you're struggling to reach him, they would chitter and, and call. And then, uh, then he, as soon as you stopped trying to get him off you, he'd run back up and then start tugging on your ear again. And this would happen over and over again. As a youngster, Robert also began looking after an injured fox cub. Vet Alf White, the author James Herriot, would of course have been delighted at that, but he'd have no doubt felt angry too to hear Robert tell this particular story. I had a fox when he was uh, quite a tiny little cub and he was completely wobbly on his feet and we didn't quite know what was wrong with him. And then one day I was just scratching him behind his ear, you know, he'd jump upon me, you know, like a dog, and have chocolate buttons, uh, you know, doggy chocolate buttons. And uh, I scratched him behind the back of his ear one day because I couldn't work out what was entirely wrong with him. And uh, he actually had a shotgun pellet that came out from the back of his ear in a mat of uh, stuff. So he'd obviously been shot uh, as a little tiny cub uh, with a shotgun. Yeah, so we called him Stig, uh, that fox, and he was with us uh, 10 years. Robert has learned so much about wildlife, he's sometimes asked to share what he's learned with scientists. Trees, bushes and flowers, which he also knows a great deal about, cover his garden. There he's fed, photographed and filmed stoats, hedgehogs and kestrels, to name just a few. But he's all too aware these are troubling times for Mother Nature everywhere. I mean, do you feel worried? Oh, yeah. 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 Are you very worried? Yeah, yeah. Literally just on my doorstep here, even, we had no barn owls in this area when I moved here. I've put up 150 barn owl boxes. I've supplement fed them in hard times, you know, up to four pairs throughout some of the harder winters. And that leaves you then, if you have a really hard winter, it leaves you with a core of breeding barn owls. Our, our countryside is not a natural place anymore. By a, by a long way. So anything that we can do to to help it, um, whether it's government schemes to, for farmers or or people like myself putting up some nest boxes, but just putting up a nest box, that it solves literally one part of the jigsaw. It, it's far far more complicated. Whatever the complications of life, Robert draws comfort from the great outdoors. A snowy winter's day is his idea of heaven. We stepped out for a tour of his garden and he showed us some of the hides he's built. He's also hidden away cameras and feeding stations so he can watch birds and animals to his heart's content. Next to a low stone wall, he told us about a gingery brown stoat he calls Bandita. She uses this whole valley. Sometimes she's actually had her kits at the bottom of the valley, which is 800 metres away, and she'll come back up here for some food that I put in feeding boxes. Uh, there's just one in the wall there. And she'll come up and down this valley and maybe six or seven times in a row. Well, that's 800 meters down that valley. And it takes her uh, three, about three minutes to get to the bottom of the valley there and then back up again. The future Olympian powers on by. Absolutely. God, it's unbelievable. What a run. And she's just like an athlete, she's just back and forth uh, taking food for her kits. But she's a really special stoat that she actually goes white in winter. She's the only stoat out of maybe 50 different stoats that I've seen in our garden over the years that actually goes white in winter. In a matter of a few weeks she turns pure white, apart from a black tip on her tail, and then uh, in the spring she turns back again. To get to one of Robert's favourite hides, neatly named Rob's Den, he has to travel underground. This is when you want to escape from your own solitude. Yeah, 
Uh, this is where the tunnel runs underground, under here from the house. So I can be in the house and I want to get a little bit closer to the wildlife. I've got a seven metre long tunnel that uh, runs underground here and actually goes into, into this hide here. And this is especially for when the stoats and weasels come uh, because they've got a sense of smell and the more I can be contained the better. So uh, I used to actually have a little hide just here. I used to come out, creep along here. Half the time I got into the hide, by the time I got into the hide, the stoats had smelled me. And my father-in-law was with me, uh, watching me do this one day. And he says, you need a tunnel. And I'm like, you're right, I do. <laughs> so it's just under where we're talking now? Yeah, yeah, just under where we are now. And uh, I've got a little trolley and pulley, and it, I just go through into this hide. And this was... Uh, so what, you like sit on a little thing? Yeah, and... yeah. Yeah, and you can look in and... Uh, Many lights in here at the moment. You can bob in and have a look if you like. There's a trolley that takes me, uh, me or the equipment, um, underground. Oh, wow. So you're obviously not, you're not claustrophobic. No, not at all. No. It looks a bit like uh, when people go in with one of those MRI scan things. Yeah, basically, yeah, <laughs> a very long MRI scanner. MRI scanners are often used to examine people's heads, but it seems clear to Simon and I that Robert doesn't need his head examining. He seems to live a rather charmed life, almost like a younger version of David Attenborough, pre-pandemic gallivanting around the planet to see, and ultimately paint, its awe-inspiring creatures. But he finds his own part of the world exciting too. The badgers are just starting to come out of the hole, and the hole is literally next to my boot, so I've got badger cubs running over my boot. I hear some uh, partridges calling and the partridges come flying towards me. They've been chased by a sparrowhawk flat out and just as the sparrowhawk's just about to catch them, literally right next to me, the partridges rush down the badger hole and they actually push by the badgers to go down the hole to escape from the hawk. And I can hear the partridges going down the holes, alarm calling, you know, chat, chat, chatting. And then uh, it gets uh, quieter and quieter. And then it comes louder and louder and the, uh, the partridges then come flying out and then fly off in the opposite direction. And I, I just think, when you see a partridge on the road in front of your car, they're just stupid. And then I realised they weren't actually as stupid as I thought they were. And uh, to, to do that, to evade a sparrowhawk attack, to like push by some patchy cubs and then shoot out the other way. I just thought they were pretty smart. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. And what about overseas? Robert's got so many animal tales, it's hard to keep up. Here's one of our favourites. I've followed badgers for one particular set since 2009. I got them so used to me that I'm almost now accepted as part of the clan. And badgers come and badgers go, badgers you know, get pushed on uh, and and die, unfortunately, over the years. Uh, but if I keep a core of badges there, even one or two that are actually habituated to me, they then show the others, uh, like the matriarchs of the clan, will show the others that I'm not a threat to them. So over the years, it's just been incredible. I, I've walked alongside badges as they forage. Uh, I've watched them, and I've laid down almost next to them when they're sucking up earthworms and things like that. And not many other human beings have actually walked <laughs> walked with badgers. I just call them and say, come on, it's only me. 
and uh, they come trotting down the dale side so they can be 400 meters away i just shine my torch uh, to let them know i'm there and they'll come running to my feet like a dog Thanks for listening to Voices from Harriet Country and many thanks to Robert Fuller. And thanks to Wishbell Heard for the music. That brings series one of the podcast to an end. This has been a Mechit Media production. Please remember to like and subscribe. Wishing you all the very best for a happy and healthy 2021. <laughs>